imagine that there are two historically quite good churches, both FIEC churches. Uh, one's in Birmingham and one's in Leicester. Historically sound, um, you know, they seem like good, good churches. The one in Birmingham is in an area of Birmingham where they get loads and loads of stick because there's loads of other religions around them. They regularly get their building bricked and the windows put through. Uh, they regularly have the services disrupted. They're in a really hostile place. They get hate mail. Uh, they've even had threats that unless they move out of the area, the church will get torched. In fact, you might have seen in the newspaper 18 months ago, uh, one of the members stood up to the bullies and they got beaten up so badly they actually died. But this church, to the, to the credit, have refused to move out of the area because they say this is the area that God has called us to be a witness. They're a brave church. But in the last six months, they've adopted a statement of faith that allows for same-sex marriage. They've removed wording from the statement of faith about eternal punishment. And one of the leaders has admitted to having a, a string of affairs with women from the church, and they've retained him as an elder. Such a shame, isn't it? Because that church that have maintained the testimony under persecution have compromised the morality and the doctrine. Or consider this church in Leicester. It's a similar church, um, but we have a little bit of a subtle difference. It's a bit of a different story. They're out, very outward-looking, this church in Leicester. It's really good that they're outward-looking. They've engaged really well with the community. They're busy. They've got lots of things going on, lots of services, lots of programs. They're reaching a lot of people. All very good, all very commendable. In fact, as I look at them, I feel a bit guilty because of all the things they're doing and I'm not. Their statement of faith, solid. You know, we could, you could read the statement of faith and this is a good, standard statement of faith. But here's the problem with that church, and it, it flows a little bit out of the strength. Because they're such a warm and, and genuinely loving church, they just let too many things go. Things that they should deal with, they never address. And it's becoming a bit of a laughing stock now. This church, they, they know that the Bible says that God loves everybody. And although they're uncomfortable with it, because they know that the Bible says God loves everybody, and they want to win the community, well, they let people who are, who are living immoral lives, they let them take communion. Even, you know, they know that they're living openly immoral lives, they let them take communion. They even let them become members. There's a woman there, and she's really sneaky, but she's influential. She says she's a prophet. And rather than deal with her, which they know they should, rather than address the things she's saying, which they know they should, they don't want to be unloving, so they let it go. They don't want to rock the boat. And, and this woman has taken a couple of the young people under her wing. You know, there are a boy and a girl, teenagers, and they were, they were, they were thinking about getting married, and, and she's encouraging them, don't, you don't need to get married, you, you can live together without getting married, and... And the church know about it, but again, because it had rocked the boat, because they don't want to come across as unloving, they just let it go, even though they know it should be dealt with. 
So one of the churches would say, uh, the Birmingham church, they're compromising. They're compromising. They've not compromised on, on the, the stand to, to not um, fall due to persecution, but they're, they're standing because they're compromising the morals and the doctrine. And the church in Leicester, they've, they've become too tolerant. What would Jesus say to those churches? Well, the surprising thing is that if we think of those churches, one's Pergamos, one's Thyatira, Jesus actually has a lot of good things to say about them. But he does have some things that have just got to be addressed. So first of all, we come to Pergamos. This is our Birmingham church, the compromised church at Pergamos. We read about them in verse 12 to 17. To each church, Jesus does five things. We're not necessarily going to have five points on each, but Jesus does five things with each church. He gives a description of himself that's relevant to their situation, and it's usually take, well, it's always taken from the description in chapter 1. He encourages them, then he rebukes them, then he challenges them, then he makes a promise to them. So first, look at the description that Jesus gives of himself to the church at Pergamos in verse 12. He says, I am the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. When we hear of a two-edged sword, we think judgment. Everywhere else in the Bible that talks about a two-edged sword, it's talking about in relation to judgment or um, vengeance. What Jesus is saying as he starts to address the church at Pergamos is, look, unless you sort things out, I'm coming with my sword and I'm going to deal with it. It's quite a scary image. How do you handle a two-edged sword very, very carefully. But then Jesus encourages them. In verse 13, Jesus sees. Jesus, Jesus wants to know. He wants these people to know, look, I see and I get you. Isn't that an encouragement? Jesus gets us. Even when we might fall and fail, Jesus does get us. With his church, he says, I see your works. He sees that the faithful people, you know, they come along every single week when, when these people have been saying we're going to do this to you we're going to do that to you they still come along the hard working people for the gospel and Jesus says that hasn't gone unnoticed it hasn't gone unnoticed that you're faithful it hasn't gone unnoticed that, that you're here every week it hasn't gone unnoticed that you work hard in your community for the gospel and it's an encouragement isn't it when we work when we stand when we serve Jesus it doesn't go unnoticed nothing that we do for Jesus it goes unnoticed in heaven that's an encouragement. Jesus gets the situation. Jesus says, look, I know the pressure you're under. I get you. He says, I know that you live where Satan's throne is. I get it. Pergamos were a massive city. There were loads of different faiths there. It was full of pagan temples. It was full of particularly satanic worship. It was darker in that sense than a lot of these cities. And Jesus says, doesn't he, he says, I get that you live where Satan's throne is. I get that it's tough. I know the pressure you're under. And Jesus is impressed. He says, he says you didn't even deny your faith in me when you suffered persecution. Even when Antipas was martyred, even when one of your church members was martyred for standing for his faith, you lot didn't bottle it. Those are really positive things. Uh, and this church in Pergamos, for those, they should be congratulated. It's an encouragement in some ways that even in a church with big problems, that God finds things to praise. 
Isn't God good? You know, we would want to write this church off. And even though he's got a strong rebuke for them, he praises them for the things they do well. I think that's got to be the way we deal with things, hasn't it? If we're going to have a voice where we can call people out when they're wrong, we've also got to be people that look to congratulate people when they do well. That's how discipleship works. That's, that's even how church discipline should work. Church discipline isn't just coming down on people like a ton, ton of bricks. It's discipling people. It's, it's saying, you, you've done that really well. Some of the people in my life who I've taken some of the harshest rebukes from have been people who've also given me some of the greatest praise. And because I know that the people will encourage me when I need it, I'm likely to listen to them. So Jesus has lots of encouragement for this church at Pergamos, but he, he has to rebuke them. Verse 14, he says, But I've got a few things against you. Because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who, who took Balak to to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So what is it that ex exactly that's going on at Pergamos? Jesus is saying this, look, you've stood firm to attacks from outside. Well done. But look at you, you're succumbing to compromise from the inside. We're not sure, again, from last week who the Nicolaitans are. There's hardly anything written about them. It seems there were a group who claimed to have some kind of special knowledge. Um, there were a group who were okay with sexual immorality. They were okay with pagan worship. Not, they weren't good people. But it seems they were getting a foothold in this church. And we think, well, how does that happen? Well, Jesus refers them back to the story about Balaam and, and Balak from Numbers. Do you, re you remember the story, don't you? Balaam and his donkey. Balak, this king, hired Balaam to curse Israel. But God wouldn't allow it. Israel were protected from a physical attack on them. And Balaam said, I can't curse them. But I know how we can get them. And if you remember the story, rather than a physical attack on Israel succeeding, Balak sent in Mo Moabite women. And they seduced the Israelite men and got the Israelite men to worship their gods. And he corrupted them in that way. Do you see it? Satan couldn't attack the church at Pergamos from outside, so he thought, I'll get them from inside. It's likely from verse 14 where they were compromising was the doctrine, but also on the morality. Churches can have huge consistencies, can't they? Stand, make massive stands for one thing, and then be really weak in another thing. This church had stood up in a pagan, devil-worshipping city, and declared the faith in Christ in front of them all, even if it means physical consequences. And yet, the same people are starting to embrace the pagan culture. Pagan worship, it, it affected every aspect of culture. Trade, marriage, social life. If you wanted to get on, you had to get in. You had to give and take. And, and it seems that the church at Pergamos was saying, we will never close this church, we will never decry, denounce Christ. But they would compromise the doctrine and the lifestyle to fit in. They would do things that they knew to be wrong because it made life easier. It's not all of them. We're told there are faithful members there. It's good for us to remember, even in terrible churches, there are faithful members. Don't write them off. 
And so Jesus challenges them. Jesus has a really simple challenge for this church in verse 16. And his challenge is, look, stop it. Repent, turn around, get things in order, deal with those who are compromising, because if you don't, I will. If you don't fight against them, I'll fight against them with a sword in my mouth. And I won't wait around. I'll come to you quickly. It's not going to be long if you don't get this sorted. I'm not going to give you long to get this sorted. Now, what's interesting is there's no five-point plan of repentance here. We were talking about this earlier. Jesus doesn't really apply this. You know, we think, well, if we're going to tell people to repent, we need to apply it. So you need to look at doing this. You need to think through this. You need to do this. Jesus just says, stop. There's a really, there's a hilarious video somewhere on YouTube. Uh, it's a comedy sketch of this woman who goes to the psychiatrist and, and she's pouring out why she does things. Oh, I find that I just keep doing this and I find that I just keep doing this and then I think about this and I start doing this and I find I keep doing this and she's paid all this money to the psychiatrist and says, what should I do? And he says, listen, I'm going to give you some advice. And she always says, what? He says, stop it. She says, yeah, but I, no, stop it. Just stop it. You, you want to say that sometimes you want to slap people. You? Just stop it. Maybe you've had the conversation with your kids and you say, if you don't, I will. And so Jesus is, Jesus is passionate to protect his church. And to this church in Pergamos, Jesus says, just, just stop it. And what happens is this. As we do say to ourselves, well, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to repent. Actually, what happens is at that moment, we invoke God's spirit to help us. We don't need a, pl- a plan in that sense. It, we say, I am going to stop it, and we invoke the Spirit's help. Jesus is passionate to protect his church. That's what we see at Pergamos. Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. Jesus won't see his, his bride defiled, even if that means closing a local church. Jesus is prepared to close the local church at Pergamos to protect the reputation of his bride. And we might think that's harsh, but it's actually gracious, isn't it? Imagine if one of your own kids, because this is how the Lord feels about us, imagine if it were one of your own kids and they were involved in something really, really serious. Something that could ruin the lives. And you say to him, if you don't stop this, I'm going to report you. And you report your own kids to the police. Well, that's what God's willing to do with us. He'll say to us, stop. But if we don't, he's willing to take action. God's patient. God doesn't close the church at Pergamos immediately. He gives them a chance to repent. But he doesn't give them forever. I wonder as we read that, is, are there things in your life that you know you're compromising on? They were for me as a young Christian. I, uh, I had loads of, in- I still do, but I had loads of inconsistencies as a young Christian. When I was at school, I would defend Jesus to the hilt. It didn't matter if I thought I'd lose friends. It didn't matter if I were the only one in the class. I remember being the only person in, in biology, and we were talking about um, where life came from, and I, I was insistent that we were created. I was the only person in there, and I remember the teacher laughing at me, and it didn't bother me. I'd go to the stake over the being a historical Jesus, even at school. But I, I was going out with non-Christian girls because there weren't any Christian girls. 
And I knew it wasn't right, but I was still doing it. I was playing football on a Sunday morning instead of going to church. And I knew it wasn't right, but I still did it. See, I wasn't necessarily compromising. For me, it wasn't so much in my doctrine. It was just in my lifestyle. I'd stand up for Jesus, but my lifestyle didn't back it up. That's what's happening at the church at Pergamos. And I'm so thankful personally that the Lord didn't give up on me when I didn't learn at 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. He had patience with me. But that patience is only so that we repent. And Jesus says, to anyone who has ears to hear, if you're willing to hear me out on this, if you're willing to act, I'll help you. That's his message to the compromised church. But then he gives a promise to them in verse 17. To those of you who do overcome, I think that overcoming is, to those of you who either stand firm or to those of you who repent, I'll give you two precious things. And he makes two promises to them in verse 17. He says, I'll give you hidden manna to eat and a white stone with a new name on it. The hidden manna, that, that's a picture, isn't it, of when God took care of his people in the wilderness. And Jesus is saying, to those of you who stand, to those of you who repent, I will sustain you. It's a great promise. If we stand for Jesus, he will sustain us. But then he said, I'll give you a, a white stone with a new name. And I think, What's that? What's the name? What's the stone? There's a few images, but the main image is judicial. So in court cases back then, uh, the, the jury or the judge that have, have white stones and black stones. And if they thought they were guilty, they'd give you a black stone. If they thought you were innocent, they'd give you a white stone. Maybe you've heard the phrase that someone's been blackballed. Well, that started out as a term given to someone who, who was denied entry. People would vote, you know, do we let so-and-so into our society? And if, if they thought, we'll let them in, they'd give them a white ball. If they didn't, they'd give them a black ball. And so if, if the ones that didn't get in were blackballed. Well, Jesus is saying, I know those who are mine. And if we stand for Jesus, he says, I'll give you a white stone. I'll declare you innocent. I'll declare you righteous. And I'll write a new name on it. What's the new name? It's explained in Revelation 3.12. That to the faithful, God will grant them a new name. His name will be stamped on them. And his city will be stamped on them. It'll be saying, this is, this is Ben who belongs to Christ from Zion. That's, that's the picture. If all around us compromise, if other Christians compromise, if other churches compromise, Jesus says, don't you. Because I know those who are mine. And, and some people will get to the end of their lives and they'll find that they've been blackballed. But Jesus says, those who stand, when they come to the end, they'll receive the verdict innocent and pure. And stamped on them will be the name of Jesus that at the moment is too wonderful to, for us to know what it is. And also stamped on us will be property of heaven. Isn't that a lovely thought? Remember the film Toy Story? How did you know that one of the toys had made it? Well, that arrived from the bottom of the foot, it had printed Andy's. The same principle that on us will be printed Christ's. It's an encouragement to keep going, isn't it? Those who turn, those who stand, God will sustain us and he'll stamp us as his. So Pergamos, some good things, but they were compromising. 
They needed to repent, and if they didn't, God would deal with them. But if they did, he'd protect them and honor them. Now we come to Thyatira, the tolerant church, in verse 18 to 19. Thyatira, as we hinted at the beginning, that's the Leicester church. It's very similar, but slightly different to Pergamos. What does Jesus have to say to him at Thyatira? Well, first of all, he reveals something about his character. He says, I've got eyes like a flame and feet like burnished bronze. What, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, I've got authority. I am holy. I've got burning eyes that search hearts. And I'm powerful. I've got feet like brass. Thyatira was famous for producing brass. They made the brass at Thyatira for, for the military. It was military-grade brass, the finest brass in the empire. But Jesus is saying, it's nothing compared to my brass. My feet will crush any nation. My feet will crush any army. And then we read some great things about Thyatira, some great encouragements. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. And as for your works... The last are more than the first. That, that's great. I'd settle, I'd settle for Jesus to say about Holbrooks, you've got love, service, faith, and patience. You know, we talk about the three virtues, don't we? Faith, patience, and love. This church have got them. In fact, they've got them in abundance. In fact, they're the opposite of Ephesus because in Ephesus, their, lo their love was shrinking, and Jesus says, of this church, it's growing. You're growing in these things. You're growing in service. You're growing in faith. You're growing in works. You're growing in love. You think this is, this is a great church. What a wonderful thing to be able to say about a church. You are growing in love. But you know what's coming, don't you? It's a praise sandwich. Nevertheless, it's one of those conversations you have. They start, I really think this is good. I really appreciate this. You think, well, that's nice to say. And you let your guard down. Then they say, but... And at that point, you know you're in trouble. And Jesus rebukes him in verse 20 to 23. And the rebuke is basically this. The church that is loving has become too tolerant. The church that's become loving has become too tolerant. We want to be loving, don't we? I hope we do. We want to be known as a church that's loving. We want to be known as a church that has a reputation in our community for being a loving and caring church. Well, that was this church. That was Thyatira. The bloke who, who's known for starting what's called the social gospel, it started out really well. It was a bloke who loved people. But because he loved people and he knew that God loved people, he couldn't bear to talk to people about hell. And so hell went out of his doctrine. See, loving churches, we can end up, because we're trying to be loving, being too tolerant. And in the end, actually, being too tolerant is not loving, is it? It's interesting because we think that tolerance is good. I would preach tolerance. I would preach tolerance to people of different religions. I would preach about being tolerant to people of different gender and people of different sexual persuasion and, and all sorts of things. I think we should be tolerant. It's one of the major areas where our society has gone wrong because tolerance now in our society means you've got to agree with everything someone does. That's not what tolerance is. 
Tolerance is that you allow someone the freedom to live their way whilst disagreeing with them. It's about disagreeing well. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I work in a factory, and in this factory I work with a Muslim bloke. And every day he gets his prayer mat out at a certain time, and he prays. And I don't try and stop him. I don't follow his lead. I actually value the freedom that he has to practice his faith, because the same freedom gives me freedom to practice mine. And we disagree about our faith, but, but we're friends. We, we discuss it, we, we get on well, we work well together. We tolerate one another's differences. That's what tolerance is. But in the name of love, I wouldn't tolerate him getting his prayer mat out in the church and praying to Allah. And vice versa, I don't imagine I'd be able to do that in the mosque. Because there are things in the church that we shouldn't tolerate. You've got a neighbour and your neighbour goes on pride marches. And they're active in the LGBT community. And you really do love them. And you really do get on. And you talk to them openly and honestly and they're open and honest with you. And you go around their house for dinner and they come around your house for dinner. And we say, that's good. That's what tolerance is. And someone says to you in the church, you shouldn't bother with their type. And that's intolerance. Jesus bothered with their type. And this couple say to you, how come we can be friends, but I can't be a member of your church? And awkwardly, because you don't want to hurt them, you explain the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And because of the Bible's teaching on sexuality, there's certain things we can't tolerate in the church. Or you say to a couple of young professing believers in the church, and they've moved in together, and rather than getting married, uh, they've moved in together, and you say to them, listen, we love you, but you can't take communion while this is going on in your life. We can't tolerate that. Now, it takes courage to love someone like that, doesn't it? And it's not hypocritical that you can tolerate someone outside the church living a certain way, but you won't tolerate it in the church. That's not inconsistency. In society, you say, well, you've got the, we've got the freedom, you've got the freedom to live within reason. You've got the freedom to live according to your choices. But in the church, we can't allow that. both from heretics like Steve Chalk, but also from genuinely loving people, we hear the logic, well, God's love, so if, if you're a Christian but you're living like this, this, this and this, God still accepts you because God's love. Well, in Thyatira, this, this loving, caring church, genuinely loving and caring church, they've got a woman and she's referred to as Jezebel. I don't think that Jezebel was a name, I think it describes a character. And she's a self-appointed prophetess. Jezebel's one of those people who it's impossible to engage with because every conversation begins with, God's told me. You ever met them? I knew a bloke in Doncaster who was a self-appointed prophet. And he always had a word directly from God to anyone who opposed him. Strangely enough, he, he didn't have anything to say to the bloke whose wife he ran off with, but that's, that's another story. But it's amazing, isn't it, how many people, and I don't just mean 
wacko self-appointed prophet is how many people use God's told me as a way of doing what they want. God's told me to leave this church. Well, well funny how often God tells you sometimes comes after you've been caught in sin. And this woman, Jezebel, she's sexually immoral. And she's leading other people into immorality with her teachings. But she's clever. She's manipulative. She's influential. I imagine she'd have been attractive. And although the leaders, the leaders in the church know, we should be dealing with Jezebel. We should be dealing with the teaching. We should be correcting it from the front. Although they know in their hearts that what she's saying is false. Either because they fear being unloving or just to keep the peace and not risk 20 to 30 people leaving the church, they tolerate what they shouldn't tolerate. They don't address it, and, and their tolerance is going to lead to the destruction of the church. It's a fine balance, isn't it? Because how do we remain loving and accessible and tolerant in society without, uh, and welcoming in the church without affirming sin? I remember saying to someone, I had a coffee with someone, and we had a lovely conversation, actually, and they were asking about coming to the church, and I said, listen, this is, this is what it would look like. You would be welcome to come to our church. You would be cared for in our church. You would be loved in our church. But I could not affirm the way you live your life in our church. We could not accept you as a member of our church. We could not let you take communion in our church. There is a difference. Loving someone isn't just letting everything go. But it is a fine balance. We can be too loving or too harsh. It's a bit like Jezebel in the Old Testament. That's where she gets her name from, I'm sure. Jezebel ruled over her, ki- her husband, King Ahab. Ahab never stood up to her. And as a result, she led the nation into idolatry. And in the end, because Ahab never dealt with it, God dealt with it. And Jesus looks at this otherwise brilliant church. And he says, you've allowed this. You've allowed this to happen. How easy and how tempting is it for a church, a church who genuinely wants to be loving, never to deal with anything, never to address falsehood, never to address controversy. We spoke last week um, about the need for us as a church. We want to strive to be a church where anyone who's genuinely seeking Jesus is given space and grace and time to change. That's tough, but, but that's what we must be. But how easy and how tempting is it, because we have a God who we know is full of grace and truth, how, how tempting is it to tolerate things we shouldn't in the name of grace? Well, it's remembering God is a God of grace and truth. And yet we see God's mercy even here. If there's anybody who doesn't deserve mercy, it's this self-appointed prophetess. But Jesus says, I've given her time to repent. But she hasn't. Even with Jezebel, God gave her time to repent. And now where the church should have stepped in, Jesus is going to step in. Jesus I'm going to cast her onto a sickbed. I'm going to physically cause, I'm going to cause physical consequences to her sin God does that you know sometimes we've got to be very careful anyone who's poorly isn't because they've sinned but that is sometimes how God deals with things you know you've got someone and they're consistently compromising God convicts them about it or they're spoken to about it they won't deal with it so I cast them onto the sickbed 
And he says, I'm going to kill her children. I think that means her followers. And all those who've committed adultery with her, he says, they're going to be judged. All those who've gone after her. All those who've been taken up by this false teaching. And, and you've allowed it. In some ways, it's on your hands. Now, what's interesting to see, within the church, Jezebel's got loads of influence. But she's got no authority. There's a story of um, a rhinoceros running through a restaurant and rampaging through a restaurant. Uh, and the, the bloke who owns a restaurant says to the rhinoceros, stop. He says, sir, you have got lots of power, but you've got no authority in here. Well, that's Jezebel. She's got lots of power, but no authority. Jesus has authority over his church. And actually, we have authority in his church. Leaders and members, that's why we have leadership. That's why we have church membership. Because there's an authority in the church that God has given the church to deal with falsehood. False teachers have no authority. They might have influence, they have no authority. Maybe people said about Jezebel, yeah, but she's such a good preacher. Maybe they said about Jezebel, yeah, but she says some really wise things as well. Maybe they say about Jezebel, yeah, but she's, she's got a PhD in theology. But that's not the point. She's got no authority. And because the church haven't stepped in, Jesus is going to step in. And you know, church history is full of people and incidents like that. Maybe not necessarily famous people, there's plenty of them, but lots and lots, thousands of unheard cases. I'm sure there's thousands now in the, in the church around the UK, thousands of cases where there's people and things going on in churches, and the church and the leaders know we need to address this, but we don't want to rock the boat. Jesus said, if you don't, I will. Jesus is the one who searches hearts. We can't search hearts. We can't ultimately determine motive. We mustn't be judgmental, but we must judge. And verse 23, Jesus says, I'm the one who searches hearts. I search minds and I give according to the works. That's what I'm going to do. It's a challenge, isn't it? I get nervous preaching things like this because I don't want to look unloving. But it's not unloving to not tolerate some things. I don't know if you can picture it, but these letters were actually, um, although they were given to these churches, they were, they were given to the churches, and what would have happened is, the letters delivered, the church meets like we're meeting now, and the, the letter was read out in front of the church. That was the sermon for the day. Can you imagine the elder at Thyatira getting up? And his knees are knocking because he thinks, I've got to call Jezebel out in front of everyone. I've got to name her. Tremble at the thought, but sometimes that has to happen, doesn't it? We passed, what we try and do, we should do this. We try and pass the people at a low level of visibility. We try and pass the people to protect them. But sometimes, for the sake of the church, you have to expose people. What area of your life, if any, are you tolerating sin by that? I mean, something you know is not right but he's just not dealing with it. Well, the Lord says, if you don't, I will. And then we have Jesus' challenge in verse 24 to 25. Jesus says 
uh, to those who haven't gone over to Jezebel, to those who have been faithful, to those who don't like what's going on and don't agree with it, those who haven't given in to the deep things of Satan. He says, I've got no other burden to put on you. Just, just stay faithful. It's interesting, actually, he doesn't even tell them to leave the church. He says, just, just you stay faithful. I think it's interesting as well, the Jezebels of this world, the false prophets of this world, normally sell their ministry on teaching the deep things of God. Have you heard, oh, he told me about the deep things of God. Actually, what the peddling, verse 24, are the deep things of Satan. And here's Jesus' encouragement to this church in verse 26 to 29, or his promise to this church. It says, to those of you who remain faithful, to those of you who stand for truth alongside love, Jesus will share his power and authority with us. I think that's a, a brilliant thought. That, that while, the, while Jezebel and all she stands for, one day they'll be dashed, Jesus, like potter's vessels. Potter's vessel, you know, someone makes something on the potter's wheel and it's not very good, so they just get it and throw it on the floor and smash it, a thousand pieces. Jesus says, that's what happens to the Jezebels. That's what happens to those who, who, who repeatedly, after, after being convicted and told, just tolerate. He says, but those who stand, you'll, you'll reign with me. That's what's at, at stake for us this evening, being smashed or reigning with Christ. Not proudly as bigots, not, not aggressively and, and calling everybody out, but as we lovingly stand on truth, what Jesus receives from the Father, his rule and his reign and his authority, he shares with us, and we will rule the nations. We're told he'll give us the morning star, the morning star is Jesus' glory. It's the rule of the risen Christ. It's, I'll share all that with you if you stand. We need to pray that we'd be a faithful church, but not compromise our lifestyle or doctrine. We need to pray that we wouldn't just be a church that has a good reputation, but that our lifestyle's all over the place. We need to pray that we'd be a loving church. We, we, I think we need to pray that we'd be an especially loving church. That we'd be known that Holbrooks is a loving church. I want us to pray that we'd be a church where people receive grace and space and time to change, but not where we overlook sin and immorality in the name of love. We need to pray about that, don't we? It's ever so easy for us to look down, look down on churches like Thyatira and Pergamos and say we would never do that. And maybe we won't. It's easy for us to look down on churches like that and actually give up on them and hand them over as heretical. But Jesus doesn't. Yet. We'll come to that point, but at first he gives them time to repent. It's ever so easy to look at the failings of these two churches and say we would never, but in less dramatic ways we do. We do compromise, don't we? We do tolerate. Now, people might not be able to say about us at Holbrooks, they let anything go there. I don't think we do. People, I don't think people can look generally at Holbrooks and say, they don't deal with stuff there, because I think generally we do. They don't compromise there. Also, they, they compromise there, because generally we don't. I'm glad if that's the case about us. I'm glad if that's the case about your life. 
But could people say, like they said about these churches, they are full of good works there. They don't deny Christ even under pressure. They don't compromise. They are, they are full of love, full of faith, full of patience. They are hard-working people. These churches bite as we read about them, don't we? Don't they? See, it's ever so easy for us to focus in on what they're doing wrong, but Jesus calls us to do what they're doing right. And it just reminds me of what I read last week and I shared with you. The church has got to be a place where there's strong gospel doctrine. But unless the gospel culture of that church is just as strong, you'll have an imbalance one of the ways and it'll fail. You'll have a church like Ephesus where the doctrine's sound and the love's terrible. Or you'll have a church like Thyatira where the love's sound but the tolerant. And if we have ears to hear, then we'll be protected from this. Let me pray. Father, help us not to have a judgmental spirit as we think about these churches. We can see massive failings in them and we can relate those failings to other churches that we see. Some churches that we call liberal. And yet, some of those churches put more evangelical and reformed churches to shame with the care for and the involvement in the community and the way that they are with people. Lord, help us to seek to be a loving church, but also where the, the culture matches the doctrine. When we need to speak difficult truths to people, and we do, help us to speak them in love. And Lord, as you have promised your churches in revelation and also we, we believe it true now that as we seek to stop it and as we seek to stand for you in our weakness you will give us that hidden manner you'll sustain us you'll give us that verdict of right with you you'll stamp your name on us and you'll share your glory and rule with us for all eternity so help us lord we pray in your name we ask Amen. As we close, we're going to sing a question as we face pressures from without and within. And the question is, will your anchor hold? <laughs>